welcome to episode 67 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined as ever by CJ. As you may have noticed, we've been on a bit of a holiday and we're going to use this and the next episode to try and catch up on what's been going on over the summer in the world of immigration law. We've got a fair few cases to discuss, particularly on detention, deportation and asylum. We've got some good news to mention on EU law document applications and um, some bad news on the procedural front, I'm afraid. If you want to claim CPD points for reading the material and listening to this podcast, then you can sign up at www.freemovement.org.uk slash training. There's now over 100 hours of CPD training material available to our members. Right, CJ, over to you to get started. Yes, uh, let's look first at immigration detention. There is a case here about detaining EU citizens called Lausicus, citation 2019-EWCA-CIV-1168. This may be familiar to regular listeners slash readers because we covered the High Court decision in the same case, and that basically said that EU law principles around proportionality and necessity must be factored into decisions to detain EU citizens, not just the decision to deport EU citizens. And what we have now is the Court of Appeal upholding that ruling and adding that there must be sufficiently individualised assessment of the decision to detain. Yes. And um, in this particular case, I think also on, on top of that, there's the helpful finding that um, this particular person had been detained for too long once the judicial review proceedings had begun. Um, and when, when you know, that re- detention basically should have been reviewed because his removal was, was unlikely in the circumstances, there'd been no application by the Home Office to expedite the proceedings either. And so um, I think he got pretty substantial damages for that period of detention as well. There is also an interesting High Court case written up by Larry Locke. This one is RHS and Secretary of State 2019-EWHC2070 admin. I say interesting, it's it's very long, it's very dense, um, but there is one particular section we wanted to highlight, starting in the judgment at paragraph 299, which says that detainees must be given the quote-unquote, true reason for their detention or their detention might be unlawful. Yeah, I mean, you often get the suspicion when you're looking through detention papers that actually um, the reason isn't that that's been ticked in the box. You know, there's a limited range of reasons. And in this one, there's some fairly plain speaking eventually from Mr. Justice Walker, who says that it was as plain as a pike staff that the true reason for redetention was new information that persons linked to his address had these convictions for various different things. But that wasn't stated in the, in, in the reasons for detention. Um, so making it unlawful, which is um, a good outcome for that, that guy in that case. And a final immigration detention case where the Court of Appeal held that the detention system continues to discriminate against migrants with mental health conditions in breach of the Equality Act. That is RASK and Secretary of State's 2019 EWCA Civ 1239. Now, this follows on from a case called VC, uh, handed down last year, where there was, a, I think, a similar kind of declaration made by the High Court we said at the time that that VC declaration should have a far-reaching impact. It should lead to you know sweeping changes for people with mental health uh, conditions. But the ASK judgment seems to say that actually very little has changed since then. Yeah, and it's it's bizarre this because the the Home Office is talking the talk on on um, 
you know, sort of reviewing its policies and being better on detaining vulnerable people. But if anything, they actually seem to be getting worse despite all the reviews that have been going on and despite the reduction in the size of the detention estate as well. You know, we are still seeing some pretty awful cases come through. So um, there's some real problems at the Home Office in sort of translating words into actions in this context. Absolutely. I mean, this case here where they've made this declaration, like, is this of any practical use to practitioners if they do have clients who have mental health conditions and are in detention? Can they use this to help them in any practical sense? I think it it certainly... um informally rather than legally kind of shifts the burden a bit onto the home office to to show that actually you know the the case on the fact of, of a, a particular case the home office has done what it's supposed to do given that um you know that you've got this kind of other these other cases and sort of general declarations being made that um that essentially they're not doing that in in, in cases our next topic then is asylum, and we have another trio of cases to look at here. The first is about cessation of refugee status, so taking it away after it has been granted. Uh, Secretary of State for the Home Department and MS Somalia, 2019 EWCA Civ 1345. Basically, Court of Appeals saying cessation is allowed if a safe internal relocation option within the refugees' country of origin has, has come up. I think in this case it was Mogadishu within Somalia is now said to be safe for internal relocation, so the person in question can be sent back. Yeah, it's it's an interesting case, this one, because the Court of Appeal overturns um, the approach of the first tier and the upper tribunal in this case, where they'd found that um, the fact that there was a safe area in a country wasn't sufficient foundation for a cessation decision. And the tribunals had had based that partly on the UNHCR uh, guidance. And of course, UNHCR has particular weight in these kinds of cases because the convention is international it's good for countries to to follow a similar approach um and of course bill um <laughs> doesn't care about that and um and basically says that look if there's internal relocation then um then then you you can be sent back our second case on asylum then is to do with exclusion from refugee status. So this is article 1F I believe of the refugee convention to do with war crimes and extreme sort of behavior that disqualifies people from being granted refugee status in the first place. Uh, in this case, the immigration tribunals ha- had before them an Iraqi doctor who had treated torture victims, and they held that he was therefore complicit in crimes against humanity. Uh, the case went to the Court of Appeal as MAB Iraq 2019 EWCA Civ 1253, uh, and the Court of Appeal said that the tribunals had got it all wrong. Yeah, and you can see it got some sympathy for the for the approach the tribunals and the Home Office took in this case because um, the guy hadn't just been treating people. It looks like he'd actually been an employee of Iraqi military intelligence and his specific role had been basically you know, working in, in prison and detention facilities, treating people who'd already been um, tortured, basically. Um, and he'd also been struck off or suspended, um, rather, by the Medical Practitioners um, Tribunal um, in the past exactly for that reason. So you can see why um, there were concerns in this case about whether he might be excluded under the terms of the Refugee Convention. Um, but the Court of Appeal sort of give the impression that the tribunal had had not really thought it through in this case. And the reasoning of the tribunal was rather deficient. They were kind of just assuming that because he was 
treating people if he hadn't been treating them they'd have been better treated or something like that. and it just sort of if you try to think about it for more than a second it's kind of well you know how would that actually made a difference um on on the ground plus um the, the court of appeal um, attaches some weight to the fact that you know he was obliged as a doctor um to provide treatment so it's not that he could refuse um to provide treatment although you know going back to the tribunal and with respect to the court of appeal he didn't have to get a job with the iraqi military intelligence in the first place so he had kind of put himself into this position arguably um so it's, it's quite a complex um unusual set of facts um but um yeah court of appeal overturns tribunal decision on the in the, in the end on this one and it's clear that you know you, if you're going to make um assumption assumptions or findings about uh, why it is that somebody's excluded then you really need to reason it quite quite carefully Finally, then, in Asylum Land, there is a case that uh, we actually first reported on free movement and then made sort of big headlines all over the place uh, in the subsequent days. This was a case of PN 2019 EWHC1616 admin. This was a Ugandan lady, an asylum seeker, who was removed from the UK five years ago and has now been brought back by order of the High Court. What what happened with that, Carl? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting case, and um, you know, massive credit to the lawyers involved for um, for for pushing this one because um, you know five years is a long time. It, it was a case where uh, you know, in hindsight, um, and given the case law that was subsequently seen on the the flaws in the fast track um, process, it's pretty obvious that she was very badly treated and given very short shrift by um, the tribunal and the Home Office at the um, when when she first claimed asylum. She just basically didn't wasn't given a proper chance to prove her case, um, which on the face of it was was you know potentially provable. Um, but yeah, it's very unusual to see an order for return of this nature. And, um, it raises the prospect of that happening in, in what must be, you know, hundreds and thousands, um, of other cases where I, I hasten to add, you know, that's not actually going to happen in, in real life. But, you know, it does raise the prospect that somebody who has been removed under the fast track where they've got strong facts like this and they, um, you know, they, they could have proven their case if they'd been given a proper opportunity. They could potentially be looking at return to the UK. Yeah, a vast pool of people, I suppose, who were affected by fast track over the years, and even a small proportion sort of availing of this uh, route of return might be significant. Yeah, I and mean, if they knew about it, if their lawyers are in touch with them still and so on, which are, are very big questions. I mean, realistically, most people will have just had to try and get on with their lives as best as they possibly could, or they may have sought asylum in another country in the meantime or something like that. Very true. Deportation then. We had a Supreme Court decision in the case of Franco Vimero, 2019 UK SC35. This is a very long-running case being handled by the excellent Lukmani Thompson and Partners. The Supreme Court judgment, though, sort of at the end of a long cycle of litigation, uh, maybe not quite even the end, um, I think it was just sort of a staging post taking the case back from the Court of Justice in Luxembourg and plugging it back into the UK system. Was was that about it? Yeah, and, and as you say, it's not the end. So the Supreme Court um, bumps it back to the tribunal, I think, um, for a, a new decision to be made on the basis of the CJEU ruling, which just reminds um, listeners is, is essentially that to get the the highest level of protection against deportation in EU law, the, um, the 10 years residence um, protection, you also have to have permanent residence, even though it doesn't actually explicitly say so on the face of the directive. Very succinct summary of Franco Vimero. 
The next case is, uh, I think, significant and a bit of a shocker from, from an appellant's point of view. It's MA Pakistan 2019 EWCA-SIV-1252. The Home Office had tried to deport this gentleman before, years ago, and he successfully appealed in around 2011. Then the tougher new rules on deportation were brought in in 2012, July 2012. So more recently, the Home Office decided to have another go at deporting this person under the new rules. I don't think he had committed any new offences or anything, and they succeeded. Yeah, it's really difficult to believe that this case actually um, went the way that it did, actually. And, it, and fundamentally, you know, if, if the new rules that were introduced from 2012 onwards um, are compatible with Article 8, and if his original deportation was blocked on Article 8 grounds, then it's hard to see that, you know, changes to domestic law in the meantime really do reflect a fundamental change in the law. Um so, so and it's it's a really it's a really unfortunate outcome for him and his family, obviously, but it's a really surprising case as well. Our next case then is Secretary of State for the Home Department and PG Jamaica, twenty nineteen EWCA Civ one two one three. This one is about the meaning of the phrase unduly harsh in deportation cases. Uh, so the context here is people who are sentenced to between one and four years in prison but they have a child and they could be exempt from deportation if it would be unduly harsh on that child to be without their parents. Simplifying things uh, a little bit there. Uh, The case here, PG Jamaica, is basically the Court of Appeal applying the test from KO Nigeria in the Supreme Court. And it seems that when you apply this in practice to a set of facts like the Court of Appeal has done, it's, it's quite a tough test to meet. Yeah, and it's. Um, I think it was um, Nick Nason who wrote this one up for us, and he's quite critical of the Court of Appeal in his write-up, quite rightly so in, in my view, because essentially this looks like it's a, a decision on the facts, and it's really hard to see how the Court of Appeal can say that you know there's there's any law in deciding this, given that they're simply applying the test that was handed down by the Supreme Court in the KO Nigeria case. Um, the first tier tribunal had reached a finding, the upper tribunal had reached the same finding, and yet that's overturned by the Court of Appeal essentially on factual grounds. And yet, you know, you get judges complaining that there's so much immigration litigation, it's because they're granting permission to the Home Office um, on the facts in deportation cases quite as much as they are. So yeah, it, it's 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 not a particularly illuminating case. There's no you know, big law involved in this. Um, It's basically a bunch of slightly grumpy judges um, overturning the tribunal on the facts. Finally, then on deportation, there is a case on procedure in EEA deportation cases from Ben Amunwa, who argued the case in the tribunal. It is called Smith Appealable Decisions, PTA Requirements, Anonymity, Belgium, 2019, UKUT 216 IAC. And I'm exhausted after reading out that citation, Colin. So if you could maybe summarise the case for us. Yeah, you did warn me before we started that you were going to hand over this one to me. Um, <laughs> it's it's quite a difficult case to, to do a write-up on because it, it, it's quite diffuse. It kind of um, covers quite a lot of ground. Ben's done a really good um, good job of writing it up for us, though. So first point, um, was there jurisdiction to hear an in-country appeal against refusal to revoke a deportation order, EEA deportation order? And essentially, basically, no, there isn't. So um, this guy had had you know, very ably represented by Ben and I think Duncan Lewis's solicitors had won his um, EEA appeal in the first tier. But um, 
I think the um, his, his lawyers had rightly recognised that actually there was a jurisdictional issue. And so essentially that decision was um, overturned or quashed in the upper tribunal because um, the first tier didn't in truth have jurisdiction. That wasn't the end of it, though, because there was also a sort of simultaneous um, human rights appeal. Now, this didn't fall foul of the ban on um, raising human rights grounds in EEA decisions because there were essentially two decisions um, wrapped up in one. The upper tribunal says that it could be made a bit clearer by the Secretary of State's decision makers what they're doing in a case like this, where they are making two separate decisions, um, but, you know, they're, they're the upper tribunal often says things that it would like to happen that then don't happen. So I don't, I'm not sure we'll actually see that on the ground. Um, there's also a point about whether a judge's refusal to make a decision is an appealable decision in itself. And in short, it is. And then the more sort of interesting point is what to do with cross appeals. So this is a situation where, for example, like in this case, you win on one ground, you lose um, on another ground. In this case, he'd lost on Article 8 grounds. But it didn't seem worth appealing on Article 8 grounds because he'd already run one on, on EU law grounds. So he hadn't. Um, however, the Home Office then appealed. They got permission. Could he belatedly, sort of after the event, um, raise an appeal at that point? And you know, the tribunal's been in the past quite dogmatic and um, unhelpful, frankly, on this kind of stuff, um, and, and rather otherworldly about it as well, saying, well, if you want to appeal, you need to do it you know, within the conventional timelines, irrespective of what the Home Office is going to do. But in this case, the tribunal rather changes its approach, um, which is very much to be welcomed. And um, they say that um, whereas the rules strictly interpreted do require somebody to appeal within the normal 14 days and so on, as, as the tribunal said in the past, there is a, a facility in the rules for the tribunal to waive those kinds of requirements. And they give some guidance on where they may well be persuaded to do so. Um, the phrase they use is very unlikely to be um, sympathetic. Sorry, very likely to be sympathetic. So um, it, it's 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 if you're in that situation where you know the judge has made um, findings on one of your grounds which help you, but has rejected one of your other grounds, the Home Office uh, you're you're happy with the overall outcome. The Home Office, however, does get permission to appeal. This is the case to look at essentially on um, how to sort of get things up and running in a challenge to the bit that you weren't happy with previously. Okay, I think the rule, the general rule to invoke is Rule 72A of the 2008 Procedure Rules that, that Ben successfully uh, invoked in that case. Uh, yeah. Good. A bit more flexibility, always welcome. Uh, there is just a couple more bits and pieces then to discuss and interesting developments when it comes to applying for sort of old style EU residence documents. So, this is people who, for whatever reason, aren't going for the new online settled status that will probably overtake it uh, uh, generally. The case is Roman EEA Regulations 2016 Specified Evidence 2019 UKUT 195 AAC. And it basically says that the Home Office can't rigidly insist on particular documents going in as supporting evidence for these uh, EU uh, residence applications. So probably helpful on an appeal where that's an issue, although I think Ian was saying in his write-up that if you're putting together a new application, you're really better off just doing what the Home Office is asking you to do. Yeah, I, th I think that's right, CJ. Um, and as you say, it's um, this isn't about settled status or pre-settled status applications. This is about 
um, EU law residence document applications, essentially under the, the Immigration EEA regs 2016. Um, and it's unfortunate, really, that it's taken the tribunal, the upper tribunal, three years um, to get around to making this finding because it's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have had to apply under regulations, which it turns out are essentially unlawful, um, which is it's pretty... It's a bit of an indictment of the way the system works um, that it's taken so long for for the upper tribunal to to be able to address it, and it and it, it's basically confirming what a lot of us have been saying all along, which is that the Home Office isn't permitted to um, be overly strict in the documents that it requires um, for EA sorry for EU residence law um, document applications. The reality, though, of course, is that it's all very well saying that, but the reality is that you actually just want to get the um, the EU law residence document as soon as you can, and therefore you'd be well advised to comply with these Home Office requirements um, if you possibly can. And that the kind of cases where it's most likely to arise are exactly on the facts of this this particular case, where it's a... Um, it's a family member, a third country national who's a family member of an EU citizen, and they're essentially relying on retained rights of residence. And the Home Office um, requires certain documents to be submitted, including the passport of the um, EU EEA um, um, person, the, the sort of main citizen that you're, you, whose, whose rights you're relying on. And um, often you, you can't because you know, your relationship with them has has broken down. So it, it's very much to be welcomed from the upper tribunal. It reflects the law as you know, a lot of EU law specialists understood it to be anyway. Um, it probably, well, it comes too late for all the people who've applied under the 2016 regulations so far. And as you also said at the start, it, it's probably of limited significance at this point, um, given that people need to make applications under the Settled Status um, Scheme anyway. Yeah, you do still hear of people applying under the old system and there may be reasons for it, but in general, settled status seems easier and sort of less, more liberal and things like that. So probably... Yeah, there's, a, there's a few situations where you might want still to apply. I mean, it's, it's kind of... It could be helpful, for example, if you look, if you're going for British citizenship and you need to prove that sooner rather than later. And also it sort of sets a date from which you acquired permanent residence. That could be useful for your own citizenship application. It could be useful for applying for citizenship for children as well. Um, but there probably aren't that many people who are making these applications at this point. And finally, for this episode, we have a case on judicial review procedure to mention. This is Sutharsan UT Rule 29.1, time limit, 2019 UK UT 217 IAC. Basically, there was some ambiguity about when the clock starts to run on the time limit for the Home Office to acknowledge service of judicial reviews, or at least there was ambiguity in England and Wales. It's 21 days is the time limit, but the dispute was, is that 21 days from the documents being sent or 21 days from when they're received by the Home Office? And the tribunal decision here is sort of in the Home Office's favour. Essentially, it's 21 days from receipt. So I suppose that makes life a bit easier for government lawyers. I can't say I've got anything useful to, to add to your adroit summary there, CJ. Excellent. Well, we can wrap it up for this, uh, this month, I suppose. Yeah. So um, goodbye from us. We hope that that's been helpful. Bye. Bye.